Today's message will be from, taken from the book of James, verses 5 through 11. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. But when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver for a person who with divided loyalty is unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world and they are unstable in everything they do. Believers who are poor have something to boast about, for God has honored them. And those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them. They will fade away like a little flower in the field. The hot sun rises and the grass withers. The little flower droops and falls, and its beauty fades away. In the same way, the rich will fade away with all their achievements. You may be seated. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. We are uh, continuing what we started last week, which is going through the letter in the New Testament written by James. Uh, we're continuing that today. And what I want to do uh, is I want to start by sharing a quote with you from George McDonald. George McDonald was a Scottish pastor and writer. Um, and uh, very famous in the 1900s. And uh, this is what he said. I want to read this quote to get us started, kind of lay a found work, uh, groundation, groundation, found, <laughs> foundation and groundwork for where we're going. This is what George McDonald said. He said, every difficulty indicates something more than our theory of life can bear. Every difficulty indicates something more than our theory of life can bear. And I share that quote with you because last week, this week, and next week, we're spending a, a lot of time at the beginning of the book of James specifically on this idea of trials and trouble. Not only because the, the Christians who are reading this at the time were living in the middle of it, but it's a very relevant topic to where all of us are because we're constantly you know, facing trials or trouble or discomforts or agitations or real deep pain in our life and James and the Bible in general has a lot to say about what that means for a believer. And last week we learned about why trouble can be so valuable. But this week, James is, he's going to kind of echo what George McDonald said. And in essence, what he's saying is any time in life you, you feel discomfort, Anytime in life where circumstances are considered by you, and it doesn't matter how anyone else interprets them, if you feel like it's a trial, if you feel like it's trouble, it's a trial and it's a trouble. But anytime you are experiencing that, it is because your theory of life has been interrupted. Your expectation for life has been interrupted. You had a way you thought it was going to go. You had a way that you imagined it was going to be then life happened differently than the way that you expected it to go or the way that you imagined that it would be. And that feeling that you feel when that happens, that discomfort that you feel, that is what makes something a trial or a trouble, is the expectations you brought into your life or the theory for the life that you had 
and those were not met or it was interrupted. And I want to give you just an example to prove this. And this is a silly example um, that will make us giggle a little bit, but I think it really proves the point. And here, here it is. As a pastor over the years, hearing people uh, share and counsel and, uh, you know, give me their struggles and things that they're frustrated about in their life. In all of my years, I've never had, and I don't think you've probably ever had this happen either. I've never had someone come to me and say, I am so upset that I don't have two noses, like on my face. I only have one. It's not fair. I don't know why God would only give me one nose. I want two, and it's not fair. And if I, I feel like I'm missing out because a second nose would, would liven my senses and I could smell the flowers more or I could, you know, whatever. I, I, am, I, am, I am facing a trial, Jason, that I only have one nose. Now, that's a really silly, ridiculous example. But here's my point. You've never had an expectation for more than one nose. You have never had a theory of life that if somehow you could attain another nose, you would attain another nose. It's never crossed your mind that a better life exists with more noses. So you never wake up in the morning, look in the mirror and say, that's not fair, this single nose that I have in the middle of my face. But you know what you do think if you've ever had this happen? If you've ever gone through a season in life where you didn't have two cars, that's a trial. That's a trouble. Andrew and I, at different times over the first 10 years of our marriage, would uh, have car trouble, or one time we gave a car away, or whatever, and we would go to one car. And I can, let me just, you listen, it's an American problem. I get it. But it's a problem. If you've ever tried to manage a family with one car, you know it is a pain in the rear end to have to try to navigate those schedules. Now, watch this. Only having one car feels like a trial. Only having one nose, no problem. What's the difference? Your expectation for life. Your theory for your life. You imagine how it would go. You imagine what your life is going to look like. You have certain expectations that you feel like are just and you feel like are acceptable and you're not asking too much and you're not trying to get too much out of life. It's not too much to ask for one nose and two cars. But one car and two noses, I don't want that. This is what George McDonald was saying, and this is what James is telling us today. That any time we come up against discomfort or pain in our life, it's because the theory of the life that we expected has been interrupted. This is really what all of these weeks about pain have been about. And what we're learning is that for a believer, for someone whose faith is in Jesus, that trouble is valuable. It's valuable. And this is more than a silver lining or a platitude or denial or just changing, you know, uh, and ignoring the bad parts. This is real deep soul spiritual formation where the trouble and the pain that we face is a gift from God in order to shape us and form us, to, to enable us to be more like Jesus and to love God more with, with our heart and soul and mind and strength. And there's some area of our life or our faith that is incomplete and imperfect. And it is that discomfort and it is that pain that is shaping and forming us, making us into the person that God wants us to be. So James now is going to continue this idea, and he does this. If you're a note taker, you're going to love this. I'm going to give you a clean outline today, okay? He does this by, by showing us what we need when we face trials, and then he's going to show us why we need it 
And then he's going to show us how we use it. So if you're a note taker, you can go, I'm going to tell you where we're going. That's where we're going. James is going to tell us what we need when we go through trouble. He's going to tell us why we need it. And he's going to tell us how we use it. So let's find what he's trying to tell us today. The first one's not too hard to figure out what we need when we go through trouble. You probably already spotted it when the scripture was being read today. In verse 5, James says, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he'll give it to you. So this is what we need. We need wisdom, but not just any kind of wisdom, not just any type of wisdom. It's not just going to the bookstore and buying a book or watching a YouTube video. You may be able to find answers, but wisdom and answer is not the same thing. Wisdom is a deep understanding. If you've ever been around somebody who is truly wise, you know that they give you very few answers and it's so frustrating. Just tell me yes or no, A or B. And then they ask a, a question, kind of like Jesus. Jesus, what do you think? And they say, well, let me ask you this. This is what truly wise people do. And so if God is saying that we can have godly wisdom, he's not necessarily saying that he will give us the answer that we want when we want it, but he is saying that he will give us a better spiritual understanding of what it is that we're going through how we get through what we're going through and, and maybe potentially what the purpose of all of it is that we're going through. We need, we need wisdom, godly wisdom. Have you ever been in a season of life or circumstance and really truly not known what to do? Yeah. Not just like, you know, some kind of figure of speech, like I just, I don't know what to do, but like really genuinely did not know what to do. I know I, I, I've been there which is tough for somebody like me because I, I love having answers. But if you've ever experienced this, you know, like there are some seasons in life where the pain or the discomfort or the trouble or the consequences are so disorienting. You just don't know what to do. Every option seems like a lose-lose. Have you ever been there? Maybe it's... Um, Maybe you're a parent and your child is uh, making destructive choices that are ruining their life. And everyone who's not their parent is like, cut them off, kick them out. But it feels like a lose-lose. Because, yeah, maybe that is the smart thing to do, cut them off and kick them out. But you feel like it's going to get worse. But then you feel like if you don't cut them off or kick them out, you're enabling. And here you're watching a destructive pattern of lifestyle in, in, in one of your children that you love, and you don't know what to do. It just feels like a lose-lose. Or maybe it's a struggling marriage. You don't want your marriage to end. But potentially the person that you're married to, they don't want to put in any effort. They don't want to try. They, they, they don't want to try. They've just kind of given themselves over to whatever. And there, there's an apathy and you're not perfect by any means, but you do want to try to do this. But you've tried everything that everybody's told you to do. They won't go to counseling. And it just feels like if you keep putting forth all the effort, you're rewarding them. But then if you don't, it's just only going to get worse. And you don't want this marriage to end. And you're going through this painful season of your life and your marriage. And you just don't know what to do anymore. Maybe you felt that. Maybe it's debt. You finally got around to like looking at the numbers and you realize that like there is, there is no mathematical formula that will ever solve this problem. You just don't have enough coming in and you owe so much because you spent more than you had previously. 
And it feels like if you try to clean up the mess that feels uncleanable, you're just wasting your money. But if you don't do anything, it's going to get worse. And you don't want to be this way, but you don't know how to fix it. And you just don't know what to do. Maybe it's sickness, you know. There are some of us in the room that have either been through it or someone we love has been through it, where there's, there's a sickness, there's a diagnosis, and the doctor says, we can try some things, but I don't know if it's going to work. And so you don't want to not try because you don't want to die potentially, but you also don't want to ruin this, this, this standard of life, this, this, this life that you have at the moment, trying something that may not potentially work. And so you don't want to be a quitter, but you don't want to be miserable and you just don't know what to do. These are real life examples of where we are going through a real discomfort or a pain in our life and we don't know. We just don't know. And, and God makes us this incredible promise. And James gives us this incredible promise that if we don't know what to do, God, the God, creator God, uh, omnipotent, um, uh, omniscient, omni, there's another one in there that like he knows everything. He created it all, never guessing, always right, always certain, all, always and he promises us to get involved in our situation and to give us spiritual understanding and insight into what is happening. And the best part of the promise, at least for me, as I'm reading it, is it says that not only will he help and give, but he won't rebuke you for asking. Which is great news because I feel stupid for asking because most of my trouble is my fault. You ever felt dumb praying to God, knowing like, God, like I totally did this to myself. <laughs> but if you could bail me out, yes. I won't do it again. Right. <laughs> we all do that. And so we're like, am I even allowed to ask for help on this? Because I'm the idiot wow. who did this. And James gives us this promise that the God, creator God of the universe will get involved in our situation and he'll give us something better than solutions and answers. He will give us wisdom and understanding from the heavens about what is happening in our life. And he won't even make us feel bad for needing it. If that's you, if you're in that situation today and you say, Jason, I just don't know what to do. I want to also say to you that it's okay to not know what to do. I want you to hear that. I want you to let those words really sink into your soul because it goes against that American rugged individualism, progress obsessed, you know, expert thing that we have going on in our society that it is just flat out okay to feel like you're at a dead end and to not know what to do and to have no answers and to be emotional about it and to look and not be able to see a future. If you feel that way, you're not somehow less than, less of a Christian, less faith-filled. You are a human being who just happens to not be 100% like Jesus, which is where all of us find ourselves. So God says, I'll get involved and I won't even make you feel bad for asking. I wanna give you spiritual wisdom and understanding from the heavens. I, uh, this summer, one of my goals was I wanted to uh, fish, which I've talked about it some. Some of you guys know I, I, I can't fish. I'm a terrible, I'm the kiss of death on all fishing anytime I go on any fishing expedition. Um, and uh, 
But I thought, you know what? I'm, gonna, I'm taking a summer to relax and disconnect, and I'm going to fish. This is what I want to do. I want to fish. And so when I was with my father-in-law, he had some equipment that I could use, and he helped me a little bit. And kind of, you know, the way like you would help a five-year-old. He would, you know... <laughs> set everything up and, and all that good stuff. But then when we were coming back, we were going to spend two weeks at the lake and I didn't have any equipment and I didn't know what to do, obviously. And so I went to Dick's Sporting Goods over on Hirschborn. Uh, they opened at 10 a.m. I walked in the doors at 10.05. I walked up, I rode up the escalator to the outdoor uh, area, living area. And I found the gentleman who appeared to me to be in charge of all things fishing. And I walked up to him, his name was Bob. And I said, Bob, I'm going to the lake for two weeks and I want to fish, and I don't know how to fish. I have no equipment and no understanding for how to do any of this. Can you help me? And Bob got this look on his face of utter delight <laughs> that someone was asking for his help. I actually snuck a picture. He didn't know it, but this is a picture of Bob. I walked up to Bob, and I said, Bob, I got no equipment. I have no idea what I'm doing. And the first words out of his mouth were, follow me. And Bob went and got a basket and we walked up and down the aisles and he was examining this bait like I examine apples at the grocery store. We're looking for perfection. I mean, he's, he's, nope, that's not it. He would ask me a question that I would act like I knew an answer to, you know, and, um, and I'd be like, Bob, I don't know, whatever you put in there, that's what I'm using. And so he would, you know, he would go. And then I thought, I didn't know how much we were going to spend, but the basket was getting full. And so we go back to the front. I thought I'm going to pay for it. I'll figure it out. And Bob says to me, he says, you got some time? I said, Bob, I, I have nowhere to go. I'm, I'm wide open. He says, let me show you how to use this stuff. I actually have more pictures of that. Here's Bob uh, with more stuff here. He's explaining what bait you use when you're at a certain place at a certain time of day and wherever you are. And, and he's like, you know how to hook it, right? And I was like, yeah, how do you hook it though? And, and, uh, and so he's, you know, drawing me diagrams and all of these things and you know, uh, it, it, was, it was amazing. And he had the time of his life teaching this master class. He showed up day to day thinking he was going to just, you know, stock shelves. And he got to teach this master class to this middle-aged guy who has no idea how to fish. And here's my point. If you need wisdom for fishing, ask Bob. But if you need wisdom for life, there is a God who will not make you feel bad for needing help. Matter of fact, he is going to be so excited that you actually are interested in a way of life from on high. And he'll give you a master class. And so that's what we need. We need wisdom, not just any kind of wisdom. We need godly wisdom. But the question is, why do we need this wisdom? Why can't we just find help on YouTube or read a book or ask our friend? Why is it that we need specifically godly wisdom when we face trials? And James tells us, look at verse 6. He says, but when you ask him, be sure your faith is in God alone. Do not waver for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything that they do. Now, what does this mean? Because this is a verse that could potentially read uh, incorrectly if we're just kind of, you know, proofing across it or just reading or just taking it on its own. It kind of sounds like James is saying, if you are not 
absolutely committed, absolutely, you know, faithful, absolutely, you know, all in, then don't you dare expect anything from God because he's not helping you. And, and in a way, because we're so shameful and we're so insecure and we're so, we feel so condemned, there's a part of that that resonates with us is like, well, of course, I mean, of course he wouldn't help me. I'm, I'm, I, I haven't been all in. But that's not what he's saying because we know that contradicts with the rest of the gospel, with the New Testament, that the very message of the gospel is that you aren't all in, you aren't fully committed, you are faithless sometimes, you do doubt sometimes. And yeah, we want to become more like Jesus, but the gospel says you're more sinful than you realize, but you're more loved than you know that you're less capable than you assume you are, but that you get credit for the life that Jesus lived because he took credit for the life that you live. And so the Christian life is not a life of proving how you are absolutely never without doubt or fault or faith. The Christian life is leaning into the work of Jesus when you are faithless or doubtful. And so James can't be saying that God will only help you if you are absolutely faultless or, or faithful. So what does he mean? He says that the, in verse eight, he says, uh, the reason that there's a problem with people like this is because their loyalty is divided between God and the world. God and the world. And this is really what he's trying to get at because anytime the Bible, specifically the New Testament, talks about the world, it's not talking about the earth or the soil or your house or your car. It's talking specifically about a way of life. Anytime the Bible says world, like it says the devil is the God of this world, lowercase g, he's not saying the devil is the God of Kroger. He's saying the devil is the God of a way of life that's happening here that's not heaven, that's not the kingdom of God. And so there is a world, a way of life, philosophies and strategies and a way that the world lives and the way that the world operates and the expectations that the world has, which are vastly, drastically, diametrically opposed to the kingdom of God, to the ways of God. And so James is describing this person who is double-minded. It's not that they have some doubt. It's not that they are not absolutely faithful. It's, it's specifically describing a person that says, I want God if God will help me, but I'm open to anything else, just the fastest, best option, that's what I want. I don't totally hate the way that this world operates and this world works. And I'm not totally against God either, so whichever one can help me, that's where I'm gonna go. This is what he's describing. A double-minded, he uses the word disloyalty. It's this idea of like, I'm with you as long as you're with me, but if I feel like you're not with me, I'm with them. And so James is saying to us that there is a way of life that this world has, a philosophy of life that this world has that is not the way of life that God has. Right. And that when you are going through a trial or a circumstance, the wisdom and the understanding and the heavenly insight that God will give you is, is for the way of life that God wants you to have. Not, it will not blend well with the worldly wisdom because it's godly wisdom. Right. Uh, I wanna read you a quote from um, C.S. Lewis 
what sermon of mine would be complete without a C.S. Lewis quote. Um, This is what C.S. Lewis said. He's speaking to this issue. I thought this was so fascinating. He said, for the wise men of old, the cardinal problem of human life was how to conform the soul to objective reality, and the solution was wisdom, self-discipline, and virtue. For the modern man, the cardinal problem is how to conform reality to the wishes of man, and the solution is a technique. Here's what he's saying, and it's really what James is saying too, is that we live in a world that has so inundated us with the message of entitlement. Whatever, if you're going through something you don't like, that's not fair to you. If life hasn't given you what you want, you don't deserve that. And so if there has something, if there's something that's happened in your life where the theory of your life has been interrupted or there's discomfort in your life, what you need is a change in technique or strategy so that you can make your life the life that will not make you feel the way you feel anymore. This is the modern philosophy of trouble. But C.S. Lewis says, but for the wise men of old, their assumption was, if I am facing discomfort in my life, it is revealing that there's something about me that is not ready to deal with the reality of the world. Do you see the difference? Because this is huge. Don't miss this. The modern man says, you are not the problem. Your reality is the problem. Here's a technique to change your reality. The wise men of old say, you are the problem if you will figure out you, whatever reality you live in, you'll be okay. And this has never been more true, I think, than the world we live in right now. You go to any bookstore, I don't know if you go to those anymore, but this is date night for the high six, (laughs) and you go to any bookstore and you... You go, look, the fastest growing section is self-help. The fastest growing section is three ways, 10 ways. You're your boss. You're your master. Why good things happen to bad, or why bad things happen to good people. You, whatever it is, everybody's smiling on the front cover. This is the world we live in. If you don't like your life, I've got a technique that will change your life so that you feel better. But then if you go to the ever-shrinking philosophy section of a bookstore and you find all the old dead guys, you actually find that their books are hard to read because they're just impossible to structure. Like there's no steps and there's not even really any good headings. They just start writing. And what they're saying is the soul, addressing the soul, dealing with the soul is most important because a right soul can deal with any reality. We have to be careful because as Christians, while we want the ways of God, we, an hour on a Sunday morning is not enough to completely wash out all of the messaging and everything that we see at all times of blaming and feeling like it's not fair and we deserve and all of these things. And that if we're unhappy, it's not our fault. It's the reality in which we live. But what James is teaching us here is that more than a solution, we need spiritual wisdom to understand where our faith is incomplete. We need spiritual wisdom to understand what God might be doing in our lives, what he may be shaping and forming in our our lives. More than a solution, 
We need heavenly insight and wisdom to our soul. And nothing brings us to the opportunity of investigating and allowing God to form and shape our soul. The discomfort and trouble and pain. I want to show you a chart that I drew, and I hope this makes sense because it made sense in my brain. Um, but this is really starting with verse 2 all the way down to what we'll read next week. This is really what James is describing. This is a process um, for our lives when we go through pain. We face a trial or a trouble that, that James told us this could be an opportunity for joy. It's not guaranteed joy but it could be, if we endure it, it could be an opportunity for joy. And so we face this trial or this trouble, whatever it is for you. If you feel like it's a trial or trouble, it's a trial or trouble. It could be a flat tire. It could be chemo. You decide. If it's, if it's applying some discomfort to your life, it's a trial or it's a trouble. It could be a delayed airplane. It could be a miscarriage. You decide. But whatever it is that you face, you begin to feel the disorientation of a life theory interrupted. You begin to feel the disorientation of unmet expectations for your life. And that takes on any myriad of emotions that you're feeling, anger and sadness and discomfort and suffering and confusion. I remember when my mom died uh, 10 years ago of cancer, the, n the number one thing that I was experiencing was confusion. And everybody kept saying, how do you feel? And I'd say, I just don't understand. And we all go about trying to put the puzzle together for our theory of life in different ways, but there's a disorientation because this is not the theory of life that I had. And when we find ourselves in those places, that place, we have two options, according to what James is telling us. We can go for worldly wisdom, which is a technique. It's a, it's a solution. It's a way that we could make this go away. You don't have to feel this way anymore. And it's not so cut and dry that like the solution the world offers you is some evil thing, you know? It's just a way to not feel this way anymore. Change jobs, change partners, buy something, move, bring it up, don't bring it up, whatever it is. There's just a way that if you'll do this, you won't feel this way anymore. And if you take that route, you probably will, if the advice is good, you probably will resolve the feelings that you're feeling inside and you won't feel as confused anymore or disoriented or suffer anymore because in the short term, you have fixed what was making you feel the way that you were feeling. But there's another way, James says, that when you start feeling this disorientation of a theory of life interrupted, if you are willing to allow God to give you the spiritual heavenly wisdom and understanding for what's happening in the middle of this, and you're willing to endure it. My line should have been a lot longer on the bottom there. But if you're willing to endure it, then there is a refining process. And in the short term, it does not make the pain go away. As a matter of fact, the deeper God digs, usually the more painful it is. And I can only speak from my experience. And the reason is because I've got 30 years of emotions over in the corner that I haven't dealt with. And so when God starts digging, we've got to dig and dig and dig and dig and dig. And as long as I'm willing to endure the spiritual wisdom and insight that God is giving me about my situation and my life and what's happening in my soul, the outcome is a deep well of lasting 
joy. Because what was a problem is now no longer a problem. Not the circumstantial problem, but the internal problem. The internal problem. Now guess what? I'm going to have more problems later. But now that we've dealt with this one, when the next pain or the circumstance or the trial comes, now we're, God, if I will allow him, will give me spiritual wisdom and insight to make this now a refining process. And he's shaping me and he's forming me, enabling me to be more like Jesus and love God with all of my heart and my soul and my mind and my strength. He is forming me. So this is why we need it. We need wisdom, but we need it because while we can find a solution in the short term, this is not fixing the deep work in our souls that God is wanting to fix, that God is wanting to address. I don't even like the word fix because it feels like a patch. He's wanting to shape and form in our life. So that's what we need and that's why we need it. But how do we use this? Like, thank you, Jason. I understand what you're saying but I hate my job, so what do I do? I am in a miserable marriage. You know, I am broke, what do I do? Well, the beauty is that James in these next few verses, he actually gives us a real life example of how this chart works, of how this process of pain and trial and trouble works in our life. Look at verse nine, he says, believers who are poor have something to boast about for God has honored them. And those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them. They will fade away like a little flower in the field. The hot sun rises and the grass withers. The little flower droops and falls and its beauty fades away. In the same way, the rich will fade away with all of their achievements. Now, again, when you just kind of scan this, it feels like James just changes topics. Like, let's go over here and talk about rich and poor people. But this is not. All of these verses are about trouble and trials. And so what James is doing is he's giving us an example of the difference between godly wisdom and worldly wisdom when a rich person is going through trouble and when a poor person is going through trouble. Now, he's definitely not saying you cannot be rich and love Jesus. He's actually talking about brothers and sisters. So he's talking about a poor person who has faith in Jesus, and he's talking about a rich person who has faith in Jesus. And he holds both of these up in these verses, and he says, compare the way that the world views a poor person versus what a faith in Jesus and the gospel means to a poor person. And compare the way the world views a rich person versus the way that the, what the gospel says about a rich person. And how does that affect the way that we endure the pain and the trials that we encounter? Well, let's think about it. It's not rocket science. What does our society and our culture say about poor people? Maybe they say, you know, they're lazy, or maybe they say they're a failure or they're incapable, but there is this sense that they should be doing better. There is this sense that they're losing in life. There is this sense that, you know, they deserve pity. This is what our society would say about, about poor people. And what does our society say about rich people? Our society says, which by the way, when it comes to this grand scheme of the world, we're all filthy rich, but let's just leave it into our society that we live in now because you don't feel rich. But the society and culture would say, if you're rich, you're a winner. You're accomplished, you're determined. You're obviously smart. You're obviously hardworking. And so it's so entrenched in us that we could see two people that we've never met before drive into the parking lot in two different cars, get out of their car, say hey to us. And based on what they drive and how they look, we could assess the value of who they are as human beings. And we all do it. 
And so James says, if a poor person was going through discomfort, trouble, and trial, what would the world tell them to do? What is the, what is the solution or the technique? Well, the world would probably say, you need to make more money. The problem is the lack of resources that you have. What would, a rich, what would the world say to a rich person who's going through a trial? They would say, you'll be all right. You can get over it. You're strong. You'll figure it out. You've got it. But James says, no, the, the godly wisdom says that a poor person who's going through a trial is able to look in the mirror and say, there is so much that I don't have, but I have everything because I have Jesus Christ. And what's happening in my soul is I'm recognizing that while I don't have all of the things that the world would say makes me valuable, I have Jesus Christ, which means I have everything and nothing to be ashamed of. And the rich person is able to look in the mirror and say, I got a lot of stuff, but it doesn't matter because none of this stuff is going to last, but I do have Jesus. And the only way that you're able to have Jesus is to admit your spiritual bankruptcy, is to admit that it's not based on anything you give. It's based on what Jesus gave. And so for a rich person to become a Christian, they don't have to give away all their money, but they do have to admit to themselves that what they've accomplished and what they have means nothing to their contribution to their salvation. And so let's say you're in the room today and you would say, Jason, I am very poor and I do have some real trials and circumstances in my life that I can clearly connect back to the lack of resources in my life. I am not saying that you don't need to find a higher paying job. That may be a good idea. But what I am saying is that Winning the lottery will make you feel better initially, but it will not address the way that being poor has shaped and formed your soul. And it will not explain or make go away maybe potentially the feelings of inadequacy that you feel in your life. Maybe the envy or the jealousy, or the discontentment, or the greed that you feel in your life, or the way that you judge people who have more than you. Wow. If a solution is provided and it solves the problem initially, good, I guess. But what about the spiritual insight that we need to understand how our family of origin and the places that we've lived and the mistakes that we've made and the resources that we have, have shaped who we are as people and define the value that we see in ourselves when we look in the mirror. What if God is wanting to do something far greater than solve the financial problem that you're facing? What if he's using this trial to shape and form your soul? It's not just rich and poor people. Maybe it's feeling successful or not feeling successful. I've been there. I think a lot of us have been there. We come to these points in our lives where we feel like we should have done more, accomplished more by now, especially we live in this world now where it's like if you're not 28 and like booming successful, you're a failure and you're falling behind. And I felt that. You've probably felt that. I don't think farmers 150 years ago felt that. Like I own one farm, but I really want 10 farms. But there's something in, in our water, there's something in our culture that says like, you're not enough, you gotta do more, you gotta do more, you gotta do more, you gotta do more. And so here you are looking in the mirror in the mornings or laying in bed at night, feeling this discomfort and suffering and agony of feeling like a failure, or feeling like you're not enough. 
And everything inside of you says, I want to fix this. What could I do to make my mark? What job could I take? What call could I make? How could I push all of this aside and really go after it so that I don't feel this way anymore? But what if instead of a technique or a solution that would solve your problem of feeling that way, what if God is wanting to use the pain of failure or the pain of lack of progress to shape and form your soul in such a way so that you would realize that one of the ways that your faith is incomplete is in feeling like your accomplishments define how God sees you. And until you're able to look in the mirror with God's help, with spiritual wisdom from on high and say, what, whether I fail today or succeed, whether I make a million dollars or lose a million dollars today, whether everyone thinks I'm important or no one thinks I'm important, I know how God feels about me. And you will never find that truth or be formed in that way without allowing God to use the pain and the discomfort of trouble to reveal where your faith is incomplete. I mean, we could do this all day long. We could talk about feeling old versus young. If you're old, our society says, you know, maybe you're washed up, you're retired, you don't have anything to offer, just be a good grandparent. And so maybe after you retire, you reach a certain age in life, you feel like you're useless. You don't have any contribution to make. You're not important anymore. You know, nobody knows who you are. Nobody calls anymore. The phone never rings, whatever it is. And so you could go be, you know, work a cash register at Lowe's and you, and, and you would feel better. And there's nothing wrong with being a cash register at Lowe's, by the way, if you want to do that because you're bored during the day. You could go get a job, come out of retirement and go get a job, and, and you would feel better. You feel like you're making a contribution. But what if in that discomfort and that pain of that trial of feeling useless, God is shaping and forming you to show you how your worth in life is not based on the contribution that you make? You see how this is working? You're single. Instead of married, our culture says, well, you're like 38 and single. There's something really wrong with you, right? And so you look in the mirror and you think, something wrong with me. I'm lonely. I'm a failure. What would the world say? The world would say, lower your standards. Just go get somebody already. Like, why are you expecting so much? You know what? If you'll just go hook up, if you'll just go find somebody, you won't feel this way anymore. And that's right for a certain period of time. But what if in the pain and the discomfort of singleness and loneliness, God is wanting to shape and form some area of your faith that still feels like you're nobody unless you're with somebody? See, this is the difference between not solving it and not feeling this way anymore and allowing God to give you understanding and wisdom from on high and the grace and the faith to endure the refining process of what he's doing. And so what we get out of our trouble is much more valuable than getting out of our trouble. In just a moment, a band's gonna sing. They can go ahead and come on up if they want. But in just a moment, you're gonna have an opportunity to take, take communion and... Uh, so this moment is really an, an amazing opportunity for us to remember and to celebrate um, how our, our Savior Jesus endured a tri trial. 
and, and how that came. Everyone around him was trying to, to get him to sh- show what it, what it means to be a savior in a world way. He showed up, up in, the, in the wilderness and said, if you are the, the son of God, prove it a couple of different ways. And his own, own brother said, hey, if, you're, if you really are the Messiah, you need, you need to go show it. And the religious leaders, leaders would say, if you are the Messiah, give us a sign. And then and he was hanging on the cross and the soldier say, if, if he is the son of, son of God, he'll get himself down. And so Jesus is going through this life, knowing the suffering that, that he will endure, knowing there is opportunity for the wisdom that says, if you're a ruler, if you're a, you're a king, you're power, powerful and you're militant and you kick butt and you don't apologize for it. And Jesus says, but I came to serve and I came to die. And thank God he did. Because... By doing that, Jesus solved the biggest problem that you and I will ever have, the salvation of our soul and eternity. And so maybe in just a moment, as you have an opportunity after we pray to take communion, maybe today is the first time you've ever had a conversation with God about what he did for you and what you believe about him. And that would be a really beautiful thing for you to have that talk with him. For those of us whose faith is already in Christ, maybe this is a moment for us to recognize that our example is Jesus who came and endured suffering. So if our expectation of life has somehow been that we won't feel pain or or we don't deserve pain or we should never have to deal with anything like that. We're reminded that it was the suffering and endurance of Jesus, our savior, who actually solved the eternal problem for us. Before we do that, I want us to pray together. You got that worship guide, grab that. We started this last week where we're just taking a moment during this James series to pray a congregational prayer together. And we're doing this because we, We want to participate together, but more importantly, we want you to take this with you. And I would love for you to figure out a way if you're experiencing that discomfort and that pain in your life and you're wondering what God is up to, I would love for you to take this prayer and figure out how you could pray this in the rhythms of your life. It's not a discounted prayer because you read it from a piece of paper. That's a different topic, but I would make another argument. But I think that figure out morning time, five times a day, one time a day, a couple times a week, figure out how to speak these words into the moment that you're in. So I'm gonna pray this for us. I want you to join me at the very end where it says, not my will, but I'm gonna do the first couple of paragraphs, okay? God, I bring to you the broken pieces of my expectations, my hopes and dreams worn thin. I'm at a loss not knowing why or what good could possibly come from this trial. What I want so badly still has not come to pass. In my mind, you are sovereign, but in my heart, I often feel confused, abandoned and alone as if you do not care to let my hopes collapse. Still, I know my heart deceives me. You are sovereign even over my sorrow. You are always faithful, always working, even when, especially when I cannot see it at the time. So let this pain do its work. Let it tutor me. Use this trial to reveal the undetected wounds and emotions that control my life. Give me the grace to trust and the patience to endure as you are shaping my life and my circumstances to make me more like your son, Jesus. Will you join me? Not my will, O Lord, not my dreams, not my plans, but yours be done. Amen.